from Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. on battle line podcast and uh actually i did get some messages because every now and again you're not there and people are like yes yeah. chris pronto alive and well no i'm dead i'm I, this is my ghost i'm such a dad i swear that's like dad joke material right there <laughs> no I, i'm i'm okay i just uh the the last one i actually had a speaking event in fort worth uh texas and so i just couldn't we, i just couldn't get it it's, it's tough to get on the podcast and travel and to do it from the hotels, you know, Ian and I have discussed that where I could do it from a hotel, but it's, it's the, you know, the internet's so spotty and, you know, from a motel room it, and it doesn't come off real well whenever I've done that before. So it's always better to just to, I think Ian takes it Ian obviously can handle it. And it allows me to concentrate on the speaking event, which is, it takes a sure. lot out of me. Yeah, it, it really does. The speaking actually, even though the events have gotten better over the years with the groups I've spoken with, the actual actually speaking it takes it does i i told the end once it's like every time i walk off stage i've lost a year of my life because it just <laughs> it's it's hard to it's hard to talk about it and stay motivated with it but it is the the story itself about Benghazi. it's not politics as people want to turn it into all the time now which is partly our fault but um it's about leadership and overcoming adversity so getting up on stage does i show a lot of emotion i do cry still on in front of thousands of people, but I, I think it shows the rawness of of what combat and what service is, and also sacrifice, and that also is part of leadership. So, guys, anyway, I'm alive, I'm well. Just Ian's always willing to work with me, and, and thank God Ian can handle this on his own. Because by, if we would have had to have done it where I had to do it on traveling, I don't think the podcast would have lasted. Because I would I would have said no. I'd have said I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So. I also think it's important to have a show every week as much as the show is always going to be better if it's both of us, uh, you know, just truly. But I think to have a new show every week, people's attention span with podcasts and all that, it gets short (laughs) and people there's so much great content out there and people do forget about you if you're not doing stuff constantly. That's just the nature of the beast. And, you know, we are competing with shows like not on their level, but Joe Rogan and Jocko and and they have multiple shows going on every week. So we we got to be on that same level. Give it time, guys. We are like me and Ian said, this is a marathon, guys. We're not sprinting. We it's endurance, and we're the turtle that's gonna catch those hairs. And we will, we we will, as long as we want to keep doing it. If we choose to not do it anymore, well, that's our choice. But if we keep doing it, I say we will catch those people. Even the famous Joe Rogan, even though we don't have black rifle coffee guys on too much, like Joe likes to do. I think they have a We've had Luke Ryan there. on plenty of times. I do love him. Uh, I think. I think they. Well, we. I. 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 I, I we want to get into that. Let's let's stay out of that. Let's stay, let's not get in those weeds right now. No, let's but I out. mean, also, let's be honest. Joe Rogan got a uh, 
like $100 million deal from yeah. Spotify. <laughs> I mean, I'd be happy to make literally 0.5% of that. I'd, if, if we could do that, I'm, I'm fine. That, that would be cool. I don't think Spotify enjoys us by any means at all. Well, say, I, and Spotify doesn't even know who the fuck we are. So, <laughs> so Maybe. I'm with you, man. I don't know. You never know, man. I mean, when I was doing the last show that I was on, you know, we met with the people at Apple Podcasts. There was a time that that they were putting banners up for like our interview with Tim Kennedy and stuff. So yeah. you just, you never know where things are going to go. I should say yeah. to you guys though, wherever you're listening, leave us a review. That stuff really helps. If you're on YouTube, I don't say it often enough, like yeah. the uh, show, yeah. subscribe, leave a comment. Uh, I mean, all, all too often for me, I really like something and I forget to hit like, and all that stuff really helps the algorithm and, and helps it us does. be more visible to more people. So yeah, check it out. And keeps the show free as well i mean as much as we want to launch a patreon soon we're always going to have free content for you guys and we'll probably have a little something more for the hardcore fans in the future um first things i wanted to mention before we get into anything else was that um two major books out this week jason piccolo unwavering a border agent's journey and this is the definitive edition he's had it out before but as he said on um his own posts and stuff this is like a whole new book for him he rewrote most of it and then most importantly for us i would say forward yeah. for the book by chris tanto Peranto. I, I, I was fun i actually got a I, you know, some it's we and ian talked about this i hate it's like homework writing i i I'll probably won't write a book ever again because it does feel like homework but being able to sit down and actually get started and have to do 500 words once i got started it was it just flowed and um and I, I admire what Jason did. Jason is, I'm proud. Of, he's proud of what he did. He's courageous. I know the, 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 the threats against you when you're a whistleblower against the government, when things need to be said. And there's a lot of you out there that claim to be tough guys that won't do that because I got to have my job. Well, you know what? Sacrifice is something to get the truth out. And Jason did that. He sacrificed his, his livelihood to sell something. And that's child trafficking that the government is part of. To get that out so the book is very important it's also goes into his background he was very open about it so i was very proud to write the forward for it and i'm also proud that jason was able to speak out and was didn't fall behind that protection of i'm going to lose my job he knew he was going to lose his job but he spoke out anyway and that shows a lot of courage a lot of ethics and a lot of integrity so i'm just proud to be a part of it it's an awesome book too awesome for job, sure jason. yeah he's great the only thing i would clarify just that that you said just to keep it um as fair as possible when you say the government is a part of child trafficking i would say it's it's better better worded i guess to say they they turned a blind eye to it i wouldn't say they were part of it i would but say they that's a part let it of it well, let's just we'll just say tomatoes potatoes there okay that's just as i say no but I, yeah I, just, I mean because the what the book is basically about is that these kids at the border were being handed off to unvetted sponsors and the government just you know, they they let it go. And actually, the fact that Jason still works for the government proves that everything he said is demonstrably true, because he would be forced out of any oh, government yeah. position if, if he, he was just making up cool. claims. And he proved his claims to be true that, yeah, that was going on. And Jason even said on the show that um, and Jason is, is not a hyper partisan guy by any means, but no, that Trump no, did something not. about it. And that when Biden was in uh, came to office. He basically reinstated that they were being handed off to unvetted sponsors yeah, and the same exact thing that. was going let's, on. Let's use the famous political media word. They were complicit. 
That's the, that's the yeah. best word. Let's we'll say that's complicit. Ba- I agree. Oh, I let's agree. use complicit. That's, that's the that's <laughs> the catch for that's the catch word for everything now. But now I, I I just even that though not even just that but just even him writing and telling about his upbringing about becoming an agent being in the military. You know he was very open about that and very open about his failures, stuff that he screwed up on, and that takes a lot of guts just to put that out to the world. Say hey, I screwed up, man. But guess what? I learned from it. I recovered and I excelled past that you know they're one step back two steps forward well that was jason in his career and uh, and that's something that takes courage to write about too and that's in there as well so great book and and i'm just very proud that he asked me to be a part of it and i'm very proud i actually took the time to sit down <laughs> finally and, and get it done because i was about two weeks behind schedule just getting him that forward but it, it, it seemed to work out well with the book and i'm proud to be a part of it that's awesome and, and then the other book i wanted to mention of yeah. course is if you're hearing this on monday Tomorrow, October 18th, finally, the release is happening of Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy by Boone and Sarah Adams. And we're very excited for that book to come out um, because it really is the definitive um, investigation of of what went on and who was behind it and the names. And they are truly putting a target on these guys' head. And as Sarah said, if the U.S. government isn't going to do it, hopefully some other government is going to do it and take these guys out. Some of them have been taken out, as Sarah said. But when you look at the news articles, uh, the word Benghazi most of the time will not be mentioned. No, you won't see it unless it's a, unless it's spun on a left wing a left wing agenda, and that's still sad to say that it's got to be that way. Leaders are able to admit their mistakes. We just talked about that with Jason. Well, that prior administration and even the administrations after are not willing to admit their mistakes. So you'll never see Benghazi put out there like it should be. And if it was, people would not just see, they'd see past the politics of it. They'd see the enemies that we still haven't gotten that were attacked us. They would know that Al-Qaeda was a huge involvement with the attack there, which people didn't know that until really Sarah came on. And and then also they would also know that it, there was a lot of sacrifice that went on. And it, some, it was needless, to be honest with you. I mean, the things we were doing there in Benghazi, we shouldn't have been doing. But we were still there and Rowan and Bub and Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith, patriots, all of them patriots. They still laid down their lives for this country, which is still honorable, regardless if you know what the hell's going on or not. Ignorance is truly blessed, guys, but they did it. And I think if people saw that with Benghazi, um, more people would know what took place there. And we wouldn't be having these issues where it would still be continuing on and on about not just the political ramifications, but just the just just the terrorists that still were never brought to justice. Um, whether it was killing them or putting them in some prison, even with our, our allies, um, it, it just would never happen. It's not going to happen either because it's still going to, the left wing is still just, sorry guys, they're just, and parts of the right wing too. It is parts, parts of the right are still not good to admit that Benghazi was the big, was one of the biggest debacles ever for an administration. And that was for both parties. And, but we're here and we're going to talk about it. And of course, Boone and Sarah Adams will continue to talk about it, as well as others that were in Benghazi, not watched it from a hotel uh, two miles away or said I was sure. an eyewitness that wasn't an eyewitness. People that were actually on the ground fighting that night or had a lot in stake in Benghazi because we were actually working that area. We'll continue to talk about it and we'll continue also to speak highly of Ronan Bubb, who sacrificed themselves and gave everything to protect us. And they were the greatest humanity. I mean, that's really, truly the greatest humanity has to offer is people like Ronan Bubb. And that was something we will always continue to talk about. Yeah, I'm only um, opening up Twitter here because I was going to say there's another um, book that's going to be coming out. That there's there's basically one more that I would say we're excited. Oh, yeah, for, you, yeah, you did. Gonna have on. We're going to have him on. Just, yeah. 
Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I have the name right because it's been a while. Um, oh wait, there I saw him there. Yeah. Brad Brad Poliska. So basically, yeah, he was on the Ben, he was a Benghazi committee staffer. Yeah. Um, and Trey Gowdy is quoted, he put this on his Twitter bio as saying he wouldn't do what his supervisors instructed him to do, uh, <laughs> referring to him. So I was like, and, hey, uh, I like that kind of guy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and I know Sarah <laughs> is a fan of his. And one of the main things he's going to dive into in the book, which Sarah does it. I mean, she dives into plenty of things, but not this, is where the origin started of blaming the attack on a YouTube video. Yeah. He has the inside information on that. And I think for the first time, he's going to release that. So I said to Brad, whenever you have a release date for the book, which I think will be later this year, early next year, we'd love to have you on. We like having people on who you know, have been there and done that. And in terms of him, just like really investigated right. what was going on and what the mainstream media didn't want you to know. Looking really forward to that. Cause I guarantee you, I'm going to find out more information, even being a guy on the ground there that night that know and been through all that shit. And even after with all the dance select committee and being on the Hill and doing our testifying, I guarantee you, I'm still going to find out more shit that I didn't know. And that's why I'm excited to have him on because I want to know, I want to still know what took place, whether anything comes of it, it still offers me some closure. And I, I do need that because to, to think that Benghazi and what happened and what didn't happen still doesn't bother me. I'd be lying to tell you if it didn't, I'm not angry about it anymore. Like I used to be, but does it still float around in my head for everyone? So of course it does. So having somebody tell me, you know what, this is what actually happened. You know what? Thank you for letting me know. That's all I need to know. And I, I'm I, so I'm excited to have him on, bro. I yeah. really am looking to have, forward to having him on and look forward for his book too. It it definitely is wild. The ten years later, you're still learning stuff, and we're still learning stuff. But when you think yeah. about it, even even the the more known 2001 two thousand one, we're continually Steve, finding stuff out. I mean, I think for years people assumed that Iraq was in some way behind that attack. And then when you look at the names of the people that were there, it was yeah. mainly people from Saudi Arabia, our great allies. I'm putting in air fingers quote for the people listening. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, it's just true. I think it was a different time in America when we invaded Iraq and people were like, we got to get these guys. They were behind 9-11. And I think all these years later, I think the perception at large would be no, they really had nothing to do with that no it was it was it was bin laden and the people that he trained it was the aqi element and guys saudi arabia they are the biggest shit stirs and everybody that's been in the middle east and fought in the global war on terror will tell you the same thing saudi arabia is the biggest pot shit stirs there in the middle east they're the ones that make all that crap happen but yet there are allies and i agree with ian i'll put that in air quotes too allies <laughs> allies my ass they're the ones that start up so much crap over there and they are not, my opinion, they are not our allies aside from the freaking oil and the, and the fossil fuels that we, we depend on them for. Um, but and again, we, and that we, we don't, and that we don't have to, which would be a whole nother exactly, statement. Exactly. But we, we never uh, got into it with Clint, but I, I have before in previous interviews, I mean, Clint grew up in Saudi Arabia at one yeah. point because his dad did work in oil. And Clint has said to me in previous interviews that like, he hated the culture over there. He hated what this country stood for. And it was actually one of the things that inspired him to become a Navy SEAL. You know, we, Clint will be a regular guest. I love Clint. And this, Clint's dedication, just even, the, 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 I don't say dedication, but the respect for our show. I know how hard it is to do an interview in an airport. It sucks. Yes. And for <laughs> him to do that with us in the airport, that meant a lot to me because, I, hey, Clint, I get it, buddy. That is the worst thing to do is to try to find a spot in the airport and to do an interview, especially for 30 minutes. And he did it. So he'll be a he regular. He an hour. He went a full hour. Did he go an hour? Regardless, yeah, we went two hours with Dale. That's true. That's true. Regardless, 
awesome job. And I love his point of view on things and his demeanor. So we, we'll have him on again. And, and that's something maybe we can just focus on. It's just that his growing up in Saudi Arabia, because I'd like to hear hear that as well. Tremendous. Yeah. And, you know, before we get to Hamity, which I know many of you guys are really excited for, and I'm excited for for part two of this, uh, a good uh, transition to another Navy SEAL story, since we're talking about Clint, was that actually your wife, Tanya, came across <laughs> yeah. this video that's making the rounds. Yeah of uh, the Navy SEAL tear gas video and the reaction to it. And well, the Navy SEALs training program is under increased scrutiny after the death of a former college football star earlier this year. And now CBS News has learned of a new investigation after we showed the Navy the video that you are about to see. CBS's David Martin has the details. SEAL recruits blanketed with a cloud of tear gas while being ordered to sing happy birthday so they can't hold their breath. When the admiral in charge of Navy SEALs saw this video, he ordered an investigation, telling CBS News it raises questions about the lawfulness of the behavior. Exposure to tear gas is a standard part of SEAL training, but the investigation is examining whether the gas was administered at too close a range and for too long. The video was shot last year on San Clemente Island off California and obtained by investigative reporter Matthew Cole, author of Code Over Country, a recent book about SEAL Team 6. I got this video from uh, some SEALs, students who were trying to become SEALs and felt that the instructors and the SEALs um, were abusive and uh, very careless with their health. Tear gas is a rite of passage for almost all military recruits, usually when they are taught how to properly don a face mask and what happens if they don't. But regulations for tear gas use in SEAL training require the instructors to stay at least six feet away from the recruits to avoid the danger of burns and to use the gas for no more than 15 seconds. In this video, the gas lasts for more than a minute. These recruits crying out in pain have already proven themselves tough enough to complete two-thirds of the SEAL selection course. One appears to pass out, which the regulations warn is what happens when you try to hold your breath. Sven Yort of Duke University studies tear gas and its effects. I think this type of training is, is really senseless. It looks more really like a form of hazing. The investigation will determine whether the instructor somehow did not understand the proper procedures or whether they intended to inflict abuse or punishment on the recruits, in which case it could be a criminal offense. Nora? Really, the person who wrote about it and I guess got it out to the media was this guy, Matthew Cole, um, journalist for The Intercept, really more of an academic, not someone with any yeah. um, experience in the Navy SEALs or the leadership in the Navy SEALs. And of course, there's people um, outraged by this video. And I know for you, it was a completely different reaction. Yeah, guys, I've, I've been actually CS gas, tear gas four times. And that was through training, through all of it. I actually had to recite the Ranger Creed. The, and if you go look at the Ranger Creed, how long it is. I had to do that in a tear gas, a CS gas chamber. And it wasn't outdoors either. That was actually indoors. That was part of the rite of passage to become an infantry, not just the Ranger, just to be in the infantry. 
Um, and the reason I had to recite the Ranger Creed is because I came back through it the second time. So when I came back through basic training the second time, they knew I was a Ranger before the drill instructors, drill sergeants wanted to screw with me. But guys, that's just normal training. And they were outdoors. I used to, I was able, and I'm not, I'm just saying, this is just to put it in perspective. I train myself and I know a lot of guys do, not just me. There's a lot of guys out there that do this to get used to not try to get used to the CS gas that when it was outside, the last time I got CS gas, which was outdoors, I was able just to wet a cloth and put it over my face. Yes, my eyes burned. Yes, I did. I did, you know, my eyes were watering. Yes, I had snot everywhere. That's just, but I didn't even have to put on my mask because I'd got acclimated to it. That's what they want you to do. I think you got to get acclimated to it, especially if you're going to be a SEAL. You've got to get used to that stuff. You've got to be able to handle it. Not used that you're ever going to be able to breathe it. I mean, this ain't the Punisher. You can't do that. It's not going to happen. But able to just know that that's what the feeling is. I can handle it. I can fight through it. And just throw that out there and say that's hazing. Bullshit. The regular infantry basic trainees go through that. And it's indoors. Infantry officers go through that. Any basic trainee goes through it. I just think it's something again that that media wants to make outlandish and make the make the military weaker, and it will it will make the military weaker if you take that out. And again, one thing is again I want to point out the video they were outdoors, and then I watched the watched read the article, and there was a one guy that passed out at the bottom. Well, look at this guy passed out. I saw that. Yeah. Well, well, no shit, dumb shit. That's why the seals tell you to sing happy birthday so you keep breathing. That's not the, just the hazing part of it. That's actually part of the training part of it. You failed to follow instructions. You held your breath. You didn't. You didn't sing happy birthday like we told you to. So guess what, dumb shit? You passed out. Uh, I guess you're not going to be seal material because you don't know how to follow instructions. See, you, people don't see that. They think, oh, they're singing happy birthday to make fun of them. No, they're singing happy birthday so they make sure they breathe. I had to recite the Ranger Creed so I made sure that I breathe so I didn't hold my breath for a minute and pass out. That is part of the training, and I guarantee you that kid that passed out gone and just because you didn't follow instructions so if you're going to do that during training you're going to not follow instructions when it means the most and you're on the battlefield and you're going to get somebody killed so that training is necessary i told ian and maybe you found out about it but my thing is who the fuck sent that video in who got that video when did when were we able to take videos in special operations training that's not necessary Pup, the american public i'll be honest you don't need to know what goes on in vetting you don't need to know what goes on in special operations vetting. You have you don't need to know. You just need to know that those guys that get through it are trained, vetted, and they will give their lives to protect this country. And that's the kind of people you need. We need, not just you, we need out there. Because I'm not one of those guys anymore. I'm here to sit with Ian. I'm here just taking it all in. But we need those kind of guys and men and women out there defending well, this country. I mean there are yeah. there are no women seals. So. Well, but there's but there's I, the women pilots. They're going to get CS gas. They go through sure. hard ass training. The women the women combat medics that actually get attached to they go through that same shit. It's not just the gotcha. seals. They think it's no. Just, no I just meant for the video. Yeah, unless, the video. You're, you're, unless and I think even well, Kristen yeah. would say it this one. Unless you want to call Kristen Beck a woman, but that that would be a whole nother topic. So yeah, and also Kr Kristen went through training as Chris Beck. So. And Kristen's a badass. I whether you want oh, yeah, to call Chris or Chris, yeah, Kristen. And I guarantee Kristen will tell you the same thing, just like our buddy, even though he's more animated on it. Um help me out. Oh, J Jake's wig. Jake's wig's video was that, but it, and his was was even further because he was talking about the deaths in training. Yeah. And um you and I were discussing that as well because yeah. um there's I do feel like every year since I've been a part of, I guess you would say this community, not as I'm not a veteran, but as someone who gets to speak with operators, there have been quite a few deaths in SEAL training. 
uh, as opposed to Ranger School, Ranger where you sure. kind of rarely hear about them, as you were telling me, it's very rare. We, and, we had a couple. And, and last a lot of them are like, but yeah, those truth. were freak yeah. accidents of nature. Yeah, the guys a few months ago who got hit by a tree. That there's no way of stopping that, as opposed to guys drowning in SEAL training. And I think the drowning element is what makes SEAL training not necessarily harder, but more um, more apt for people dying. Well, there, there are, there are. The water is, is in water, something you can't control. I hated going through scout swimmer and pre-scoop. I fucking hated that shit. I scout swimmer was awful. Um, but when we talk about that in the desk, the risk assessments and CS, we'll throw in the CS, the tear gas thing off the table now. We've talked about that. That's done. Yeah, that, and we do that, have to get the Hamity in a minute. Yeah, we so. do. But but the the uh, the actual risk assessments for when you're in the water, and, and it is, it's a big deal. I remember the first time I did a, a surface swim, a bunch of ranger that were pre scuba certified. I mean, scuba certified rangers threw us in the Puget Sound and said, "Swim in." I had never, I I didn't know how to surface swim, and they got their asses chewed out for it because the, the sergeant major came in. Sergeant Major Roberts, oh Debo, love that guy. He came in and chewed their asses out. He's like, D you guys did not do your risk assessments. You could have lost somebody out there because they really could. I mean, we came back in. I'm like, holy shit. I didn't know how to swim or anything. You just threw me in the Puget Sound. That's just stupid. But yeah, that's a big deal. You need to, if you're an instructor, guys, and I'm not going to knock the, the instructors out there. They, they do know what they're doing, but you sure. do have to make sure you do your risk assessments. We have risk assessment cars that you go through training that you make sure it's safe. And you can pull those up online. You can see them. Um, if they're not doing them correctly, then yes, the, an instructor needs to be reprimanded at least once. And then if he doesn't do it correctly again, out, or maybe just once and you're yeah. out. But there, but, there is always going to be that risk there. I yeah, think it's if, fair to course. say. It's never going to be 100% proof of anything. And that's why these guys are the toughest guys on the planet. Um, before right. we get to Hamity, which we're really excited to have part two of this, um, every show of ours is sponsored by Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact, which is their trademark in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in every state. You'd also go to the website, which is as simple as fsm.com. Uh, if you go to the dealer locator, just type in your zip code. You're going to find a dealer by you. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE. You're going to get 15% off your order. Only available to our listeners, the BATTLELINE podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. Once again, guys, fsm.com, promo code battle line and this is what you shoot with every day pretty oh, much it's, it's tremendous it's the best ammo on the market and you know as we become even more environmentally conscious which we should if you're a shooter you're shooting outside clean up after yourself clean up your ranges and if you can if you have the ability to do it use lead-free ammo and and that's one thing i love about force cut munitions it's all copper best ammo and so we're not poisoning the ground out there and that's a, that's a big deal guys as much as people think us shooters are not environmentally conscious we definitely are because we love Absolutely. being outdoors so force cut ammunition best ammo out there it's copper it's all copper lines copper ammunition 
and just a tremendous, great company and great family that owns the company, the, the Kraft family. I mean, that don't, yeah, great yeah. family that owns the company, the Kraft family. Yeah, check it out, guys. And also, this show is sponsored by our friends at Bubs Naturals. Uh, Bubs Naturals has so many great products, whether it's the uh, the, the uh, uh, MCT oil powder, the collagen protein, and I especially lately have loved the apple cider apple vinegar cream. gummies. These are great for digestion. They're great for detox, uh, det detox of your body. Um, so many benefits, really. And you can read more about that at bubsnaturals.com. Great for post-workout, the collagen protein. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, not just workout recovery, but great for your joints, your hair, skin, your nails. We've had people write into us at battlelinepodcast at gmail.com who have had some great results using Bubs Naturals and basically switching over from a whey protein uh, to something like a collagen protein yeah. and the benefits that they've gotten. So bubsnaturals.com, promo code BATTLELINE. You get 20% off. They also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. So check them out, bubsnaturals.com, promo code BATTLELINE. With that, let's get over to Hamity. So back on the podcast with us is Hamity Jassim. On by phone, I know you have the microphone in front of you, but we're on by phone because you're installing a new computer here. Um, so yeah, that's why you probably won't hear Hamity on mic, but we've done this before. It should sound good. Um, back on with us, Hamity was last on episode 148, which was titled Tortured in Saddam's Iraqi Prison at 12 Years Old. We got into that story among a lot of other crazy things that you've experienced. So Hamity's better known as the terrorist whisperer, uh, imprisoned under Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and then served in the newly formed Iraqi army uh, after Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then, which we'll get into in this part, was recruited in 2005 by U.S. intelligence uh, author of The Terrorist Whisperer, the, the story of the pro-American, which also became a film, host of The Black Sight Show. Yeah. And yeah, it's great to have you on. And uh, we figured as this part two, which people have been patiently awaiting, getting to the story of, yeah, getting recruited by U.S. intelligence. And it was a great episode with you. So we're glad to have you back. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I apologize for the technical difficulties, but I'm glad we're back. And um yeah, I, I'm so glad to be back in the podcast with you guys. Uh, thanks, buddy. And we'll just jump into it. I know we're, we're kind of pressed for time and people want to know because yeah. we left them hanging, man. We left them. You're, yep. you're at the MOD and it looks like you're going to get you're going to get snatched up man. because you, yeah. you got all the Americans out of there, all the all the soft skill people out of there. And yep. now now you're you're on your own with with you got it. I don't know. Was it AQI or was it uh, was it uh, Mahdi Militia coming in? Who was starting to come in into the building that you were had to worry about? So, man? so, so the building because it was so it's it, because it was the highest budget in the country at yep. the time that it was uh, almost like the pie that everybody wants to have peace on. So nice. you didn't only have members of Al Qaeda who made it in. Uh, perhaps members of Al Qaeda were the new foreign object coming into the building. Prior to that, we had Iranians whose job to basically collect intelligence uh, on Americans' uh, agenda yeah. or American yeah. military leadership decisions. Uh, you got the Battle Corps, which is also part of Iran, the Meta Militia. Um, you, you kind of put all these terrorist organizations to the side. You only focused on those who wants to harm Americans immediately. Um, organizations like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda um, don't really have any other thing other than just trying to kill as many Americans as they want. And perhaps these are the, the five, we had about five um, terrorist organizations that made our number highest list that because these are the guys who would take action immediately, they wouldn't care, they're ruthless, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to uh, kill Americans. So we didn't worry about 
the Iranians collecting on us because we were trying to worry about the guys who will blow us up uh, just for the fact they'd kill anybody. And to, to, to them, the building was extremely important because it's the only place in Iraq where you can see that many high-ranking officers walking around with a nine millimeter. Uh, as I talked about the kidnapping issue prior, this was just an open hunting zone for them. And uh, Al-Qaeda came in to be top because not only that they were in the building uh, trying to kidnap an American officer, uh, these guys were in there and it's their first time coming to touch with Americans, seeing people uh, coming, walking into the building. So they figured this was the only place in Iraq where can, they could actually either kidnap somebody, kill somebody and make damage to that high ranking person. So that's the day. I got ordered after 72 hours of travel ban to the MOD uh, and the travel ban was to the MOD like back then sure. in 2005. And it was called a travel ban for 72 hours. Um, that's when I got called by uh, U.S. Army Colonel Intelligence Officer Colonel John Burke. And I was ordered to go outside of the MOD, meet with the intelligence and secure locations. And that's when my recruitment officially as an intelligence asset to the U.S. intelligence um, kind of went on. And my job from that point on was to actually um, build a database of all these individuals, because this was the honeypot. This was what all that everybody would come into this place. So they took advantage of this to use me as a router to actually build a database. Who are the individuals in the, in the Iraqi government? that would want to be part of this piece. So that's when my job went in to build the database and try to distinguish A, Y, and Z. Who are these people? What organizations they work for? What are the agenda? What are they trying to do? But of course, I didn't have the time to, in the day, to focus on other people. So my main focus was really Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and uh, al and mostly Sunni insurgency at the time because they were taking physical aggression against the U.S. military. Of course, at the time, no one would think Iran and Al-Qaeda was connected in any way. That was not a thing in the, in the time. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps the media, the, the leadership, nobody wanted to believe it, right? That there was yeah, no evidence of it. You think they had a little bit to do with it? Yeah, just, just a little bit. The media, oh, the media. Bit, actually, yeah, actually, I know. That's believe it or not, in today's world, and to today's evidence into 20, 2022, uh, I'm in a lawsuit right now against Iran in behalf of Gold Star families in federal court. I'm testifying in three months. Um, I saw the I saw the photo of you with the uh, yeah, the title. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, I'm uh, you know testifying in in trial in about a few months against Iran because back then we didn't know how Al Qaeda got this update. Um, like you have to understand 2004, all the way down 2005, we were having all these firearms exchanges. We were having all this cowboys shooting one another. And all of a sudden you see that Al Qaeda got an update, yeah. which is called the EFB bomb. Yeah. And they started smashing people. If you go look through the data of all the American soldiers that get injured in Iraq, you're going to find out most of the 17,081 American soldiers. Uh, 381, 17,381 American soldiers got injured with a very small amount of time because 
of an EFP. You call them EFP. We call them EFPs, electric uh, uh, force projectiles. They're like platter charges, man. And and, and if you look into the EFP material, how the EFP is done, this is a bomb that was studied in Iran, how to go through an armored Humvee. And the fact that this was a bomb that was smashing up armored Humvee into nothing. Uh, this, This bomb not only can destroy a Bradley vehicle, this bomb that could actually melt the door where people inside can't get out. So this has all been tested. This has all been studied. And back then, no one believed this was a thing. Perhaps if you go back into the, D- the DOD footage back then, which I remember I was present at the time, Laura Logan and Michael War were questioning the U.S. leadership on how are you really going to prove that? Uh, because everybody in Iraq or the U.S. leadership at the time believed that Bush was trying to attack Iran next. And that was the, the, the norm that was happening. So, of course, Iran did not leave any evidence on the ground. But in today's society, we're able to prove that Iran, if it wasn't behind providing materials, they were behind training. If they were behind training, they were behind funding. That they found ways to be there supportive of these organizations. So back to my story at the time, we were not worried about the biggest denominator, which is Iran. We were worried about the guys who were attacking us. We weren't thinking about who's providing training, who's providing um, supplies, who was showing them how to do these things. And um, at the time, uh, there were no evidence Iran was involved because in Iraq, there was only one operative, which is hard to believe. It was one operative that Iran sent of no Iranian descent who was highly trained. And this operative was actually in in a Hezbollah operative. And he was highly trained and his only job was to do training. He was the master trainer behind anything Iran wants to do. So Iran was smart enough to use a third party not using Iranian operative, not using Iranian Republic, uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard officer. They use a Hezbollah oper- operative who goes by the Ali Musa Daktuk, who's a Lebanese guy. And the guy is so damn skilled, he would go into Iraq uh, speaking uh, very di- fluent Iraqi dialects. Yeah. And this guy was in our prisons, arrested and detained, and we didn't realize the fact this guy is not Iraqi. He's a Lebanese Hezbollah operative. And his dialect is completely different, but it takes people at the agency a lot of skills to realize. So somebody who was Kais al-Khazali, who is now a very famous terrorist who was leading big, big things in Iraq, made these confessions. He was a member of the Meta militia, made the confession saying, well, that guy next to me in the cell is not Iraqi. And that's when everybody in the U.S. intelligence were like, oh, hold on. What, what are you talking about? He's not Iraqi. He's Lebanese. And once they found him, they got all the the, the paperwork that was in his laptop, the IDs, the, perhaps the Iraqi government issued him ID cards because it goes to show you how many bad individuals were in the Iraqi government who works for either Iran or Al-Qaeda or anybody. And he basically pulled all 300 individuals out of Iraq, took them to Iran. This is what became the EOD, explosive specialist among terrorists, got trained properly, Went back to the fight. So not only you are getting attacked by Shia militias, you're getting attacked by Shia militias, Sunni militias. They're all attacking you the same style, which is the U.S. never looked into the data. They're all attacking you with EFB bombs. This should have resonate. The, the training was a mutual. And 
somebody did that. But back then, this was not a thing. This was a conspiracy theory. This was, was not a. And this uh, was oh oh was it oh five oh four oh five yeah, oh five at the time. That's when things okay. got really bad. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that you're you started seeing Humvees get smashed, and you can't even see the Humvee anymore. And and it, and of course, back then, in my <clears> job as someone who is just collecting in the in the street level intelligence, trying to figure out the connections was. Um, I would have sounded completely insane if I said, hey, Iran is really, I think Iran is behind training. They will look at you like funny, right? They, they'll well, like, well, you're, that, you're, I, that makes no sense. You know, this just tells yeah. you how inept the leadership in the U.S. is. Essentially, we've got weeds and we're cutting off the top of the weeds, but we're not getting to the root of the problem. The roots, we're not killing it from the beginning. Yep. How, the, exactly. how the fuck did they not, you, how did they not realize, hey, we got to get to who's training these guys? And they're, yeah. I, I'm asking, I mean, I, I kind of know the answer because of being around yeah. all these inept people, but what, what, the, what were they telling you? And why weren't they, were they not listening and saying, you know, we need, were you not telling, first of all, were you, did you not feel like you could tell them, say, hey guys, we need to find out who's training these guys. That's where we stop it. That's where we pull the weed yeah. out from the roots I, instead of just chopping off the top and then it's going to grow back. What were you seeing? I, I think. I think personally that the agents that were her above me who were taking these intelligence to the leadership were just doing their job. They're just transferring the information. Sure. I believe the leadership refused to believe this was a solid intelligence, that this was something that we needed to consider. And as you know, everybody has an opinion in the military. Everybody has, uh, they think they know it better than the guy on the ground. So yeah. unfortunately, that gap of the ego that some of the leadership had that didn't want to believe the fact there got to be something uncommon here among air attacks because they believed that the guys who were fighting us were former Republican Guard uh, officers. They're highly skilled, but they never looked yeah. into the materials that were used. The material that were used in the EFB bomb were absolutely not materials that were familiar with the old Iraqi military. Yeah. A lot of this material, you have to understand, you have to go back through the 80s to figure out where Iraq contracted to buy weapons, yeah. explosive, yeah. and is the materials are similar to what uh, what 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 that was provided at the time in the fight. And if you have dig deep into it, it's like doing a, a blood work to know what you really blood, what's going on through yeah. your body. All you have to do is test the material to see, oh, holy crap, Iraq never owns such a material. These copper metals, that <laughs> a little plate that sits right under the EFB, this thing was not in Iraq at all. So where did it come from? Yeah, Because if you look at it, it's just a copper little metal plate. But that thing right there didn't exist in Iraq. And you are not getting hit with it, an artillery uh, 72 million like artillery or yeah, yeah. you never get ahead of that. This is not traditional. This is non-traditional. This is created and tested. So, so of course, Iran was always 10 steps ahead of the game. And, and my job at the time was really to protect the building, protect the 75 American advisors at all costs. The other uh, hurdle that I had every single day is that this is the Ministry of Defense. This is where uh, members of Congress, members of the U.S. government, U.S. leadership, like four-star generals, would come to meet with the minister. So how would I be able to guarantee their safety walking them into the building where all terrorist organizations had groups inside, walking them in and out? without any uh, trouble. So the, the, at the time, the first protection, that's when I was the first Iraqi to be sent to uh, counterterrorism first protection school. So I Which attended is, that. And I this was the is first where we kind of left off. 
I'm yeah, sorry. Say, this is kind of this is kind of where we left off on the yeah, last so, episode. So basically, and where I went people to that were school. hanging. Yeah. Yeah. I went to that school to learn really how to protect my building, how to really deal with this. And at the time, as I made a little hallway, and the hallway was shut down from both, you know, from I would shut the whole entire building from this one hallway where U.S. leadership or U.S. delegations will go through. And I would just lock the door from both sides. I'll put soldiers in there. I'll lock them myself where no one has a key. Uh, Secret Service will call you. They'll send their dogs. They'll send all the guys. They'll secure the whole entire place. And then the second, the real delegation, like the actual uh, uh, convoy will come in and they'll get these individuals in, will count their time. And then within half an hour, they'll be out. And uh, it used to be the, the scariest thing that I've ever done in my life is walk somebody who's extremely famous or important on the U.S. government in into the second floor because you couldn't tell them right behind this door, there is like the lines out there. Um, there, there are lines out there behind this door that, that can eat you alive. And, and you couldn't really say that, but you just did what you did. And uh, my job remained as the as the main contact in the building. I remained doing what I was doing, what I was good at. And there was nothing in the world I was good at. No skills in the world I was good at. There was nothing I really was a master of. This was the only thing that I was good at is how to collect intelligence, how to do this, and how to change the game and and build a database of these individuals. And because I was doing it for three years and a half, this was not a deployment. This I was there for years doing this. I got better off doing it, and I was more in details providing valuable intelligence towards the end. That's why intelligence in my later years ended up going straight to the president because it was highly valuable. It was important. The president needed to be aware of what he was dealing with. And it just kind of went from there. And, and, and my I was job just remained. Say, I, I was just going to say, I mean, this is like a job that only someone like you, it sounds like, who could embed himself in the culture could really do. Um, yeah. It reminds me of when we had uh, Alana Duffy on and she was saying, you know, white guys over there, like, no matter how big of a beard you want to grow, you can't really white. be embedded. Yeah. Yeah in, yeah, in Middle Eastern culture, you have to be able to blend in and someone like you can blend in with these people. Yeah, and it, it's really like I remained as the person that just, I, I remained doing what I was doing. Uh, there was a lot of situations where I could have eliminate somebody right at his position and I would absolutely not bother them, leave them alone because they weren't worth me of doing what I was doing. I was not exposing anything that I would do. Until somebody had built a suicide built inside of the building and we were not aware of what he was doing. We didn't know it was a suicide built inside of that locker. Um, all the information and the data we collected that the person was disappearing every 45 minutes. This was someone we were keeping an eye on because we would know that if any American would be hurt, this is a very close threat. Yeah. And um, he was ahead of us. Um, he was able to get a small amount of explosive every single day. Mm-hmm. He was a trained to build a, a little built within the building. And doors like that or anything that I have would have not done anything. I mean, only God knows how many of them out there that that I didn't know of, that I, I wasn't aware they were not in the system yet. So to me, this was um, a complete, um, basically, um, a complete uh, situation where I had to, I, I had to just remain and do what I do. So when we... When my, my cover got exposed, uh, end of 2007, um, 
that's when I was ordered to leave the building and I decided not to leave the building. I decided that this was my job. I, I'm not going anywhere and I won't go sit in the base doing nothing. And I'm in the building anyway, that nothing would happen to me. I'm a soldier. They can't really come within my circle. I have enough people protecting me. And that's when they started going after anybody I would talk to. So I had one of my sources and teammates left the building and he was assassinated 14 minutes after he left the building. And that's where he was out of it in well, six months, he was a stuck in there. The moment he, he walked out, they assassinated him and killed him. And they started to play the emotional side, knowing that I'm not just an intelligent asset. I'm a command sergeant major in the military. I had a PSD team full of highly trained by the U.S. military that that was going to protect me around my circle. So they figured they will do the emotional side and kill anybody that I know around me until they figure out a way to psychologically pressure me to leave because I was causing them more damage sitting in there and Towards the end, it was just an emotional, um, it, it, it was, you had to make a decision, um, information or lives. And it was hard that the information you were getting, it was saving lives. Uh, it was making a difference. And then also at the same time, you were, they knew who you are. They know of somehow you're collecting to the U.S. government and they want to stop you any way as possible. So you're just going to have to make a decision what you're going to do. And at that time I, I was lost. This was my career. I was a, a five-year soldier that been at war for five years. This is what I was doing every single day. And all of a sudden you're telling me, Hey, you got to walk out of this and just go start a whole new life. And I didn't know how I was going to do that. It, it was, b- believe me or not to this day, that walking out of the building, uh, Probably the hardest thing I ever done in my life. The hardest. Uh, witnessing explosions, suicide bombers, uh, walking five feet away from the most dangerous Al Qaeda members in Iraq. All of that didn't shake me a bit, man. All of that was just part of my environment. But telling me to take that uniform and walk out of there and your job is over after five years, every single day you were doing this, it was probably the hardest uh, thing I ever dealt with in my life. The feelings yeah. and the 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 what was going on through my, my heart and my brain. It was just hard, man. I felt like I was grabbing something and I just didn't want to let go. And, uh, and it was hard to leave that, that night. You know, I left around evening. Uh, everything was fine in the MOD. Everything looked the same. And I just told the people I'm stepping out to go to the DFAC. I'll be back in five minutes. Did, did the U S ever when, so they didn't know you were leaving. You didn't know you were, you were, were the U S did the the U S so the did, intelligence, the U.S. intelligence, everybody in the U.S. side knew okay. they wanted me to leave six months prior uh, for my safety. Uh, perhaps they didn't want me to just lose my life being in there. They, they wanted me to leave. They said, listen, it's not about information anymore. It's about your life. Safety comes first. We have made promises to previous agents that, that we will keep you alive. We will we'll, we'll not get you any harm. So they, they cared about my life. They didn't want me to uh, get killed. So... At the end of the day, they said, you're going to die anyway. Hey, you, you're going to get killed. They're going to do something <laughs> to kill you. They, they're going to eliminate you. If, if this suicide yeah. belt you were able to stop, the next one you won't be able to stop. He'll, like, eventually, they thought someone's going to walk into MOD and hug me and blows up and we're done. And, and at the time when I left, it, it was hard, man. It was just difficult that I didn't want to let go. And uh, when I walked out of there, it was the, the, if you have asked me, 
uh, anything that day um, to stay in there, I, I would have done it. And I, I just couldn't, you know, it was hard. And, uh, you know, I've never, never got emotional, never cried. I, I cried leaving out of that gate, man. I cried like walking out there pretending that I'll be back in five minutes and it's my normal day. And it was the last time I ever saw every single face that was in, in my life in that war for five years that was yeah. doing me a favor that was uh, fighting in my side. And, and I felt that uh, in order not to get them killed, I'm, I'm the target. And if I walk away, uh, all of that walks away with me. So I, I walked out and uh, went to a U.S. space uh, nearby, which I had a ID cards and everything where I can enter any U.S. space at the time. And, and I, I, I sat for a few months in that base waiting for my American paperwork to finish and, and to leave the country. And I left the country within a few months. And uh, it, it was the most difficult thing, man. Uh, you know, imagine you being a five year, at a five-year war and uh, all sure. of a sudden you're not only leaving your job and your environment, you're leaving your whole entire home, your whole entire country, people you knew, you grew up seeing every single day. And then all of a sudden your whole entire life just got deleted, right-clicked and deleted. Uh, you didn't exist and you left the country. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't know what was, what was I coming to here, you know, in the plane, what's America was like. I, I had no idea about any of that. Um, so I left in July of 2008 and uh, that was it. That was my last time. I took my last look out of that window, uh, out of the plane. And something in my heart just told me that you will never see this place again. Sure. Oh yeah. What, where did, where did they end up? Where's the first place you went into and what did you, what'd you start doing when you got to the States, man? So of course I, I made it to Washington, DC. Um, is that, is that where the plane ticket was? It ended in no, Washington, no, the plane <laughs> ticket was actually to JFK. Okay. And okay. as soon as I landed in JFK, you know, there was an intelligence officer waiting for me okay. uh, at the airport. And when I got out of JFK, you know, I don't know if you've been around JFK airport, right? Have yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a really shitty yeah. airport, by yeah. the way. Um, and when I got out, I'm like, really? That's all America? That, that, that's literally what we were promised? <laughs> like, look at the shitty place. Look at the walls. Like, I'm like, we got better infrastructure in the, in, in the gray zone than this crap. It's so I, then I realized it was just LaGuardia JFK. Was JFK before, airport wasn't uh, yeah. as nice. They're both the I. They, which one? They fixed up one of them. Which one was it? Laguardia. They did. I was just gonna say, yeah, JFK yeah. is not even as JFK bad as that is. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything in JFK was just didn't look right. And I got off, and I looked, and I was like, shit. Right, probably this was all movies. This is the real America, right? Hey, JFK, look at that wall full full of piss and homeless people. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> um, and uh, when I got out, the intelligence officer was waiting for me outside, and uh. It was good to see him for the first time because the last time I've seen him was 2005. And um, got out and he drove me to a place in, um, in uh, Albany, New York. And I sat there for about three days. And then they put me on the, on the train to go stay with somebody in DC who I also worked with. And I ended up going to DC and uh, the first... 13 days of my, um, that I arrived, which I had nothing else to do in the world. I mean, imagine you go from being a war zone for five years, every single day being attacked to looking at the United States. That's completely silent and quiet. And you don't see people. There's nothing going on on the road. 
it was just a weird environment. I didn't know how to react to it. And at the time, the intelligence officer I was staying with was like, hey, why don't you just uh, get on the bus and go to the Smithsonian's, go, go look at all the museums and everything. And for the first 13 days, I would either go to Arlington Cemetery, where I had friends that are buried there, um, figure out where they were buried or where they are. And I, th after that, I would go to the museums, go wander around. And it took me just about a few months to really figure out how to get out of depression because I got extremely depressed that I came from my environment to this environment and I didn't know how to behave. So I went through really eight months of nothing but a depressed environment. I didn't know how to survive. But you, and but you, but you got out. You still, you weren't just sitting in a room feeling no, depressed. I got out. See, that's honestly, that's, that's great material right there, buddy. That's good for even veterans coming back. Hey, don't sit in your... Don't sit in your room feeling bad for yourself. Get out. Yep. Just go do something. And that's that's honestly that's yeah. If anything you say today, that is hugely important for veterans and people that go through depression to hear. Indeed. Like, get off your Indeed. ass and exactly. No, keep going though. That's yeah, awesome. People yeah, and I, 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 hear I, just, I just I was like, you know, I'm sitting here, uh, you know, not doing anything. I literally just stopped walking, man. I went yeah. out. I went to the Smithsonian's. I went to uh, Arlington Cemetery. I saw all my friends where uh, I, I kind of went through everything to see like what America's like. I didn't know how to cross the street. I actually didn't know there was a sign that you have to see people walk in. I would have crossed from anywhere. People would scream at me. And that's, uh, but that's back to, that's Iraq. That's all, I, that's, you don't realize that's, that's how it is, about, right? man. I was like, what do you mean that I have to wait? I'm like, I don't have to wait. <laughs> Technically though, New, New York City, I mean, no one waits for a sign. Yeah, the only New York City is a whole wild thing. I mean, well, truly in New York City, it's, it's a different animal, but I was like, you know, Washington, D.C. was really different. And sure. um, I, I would get into uh, the, the, the train and figure things out. And uh, I used to be terrified. I mean, look at this guy who fought terrorists all his life. The most terrifying thing is getting lost on the train because I don't know where the <laughs> hell to get off. And I would just get used to my environment. And it took me eight months. And then I was like, you know, you're not going back to Iraq. Uh, your life, it's going to be the same. And this is it. You, you're, th this is your new environment. You somehow, you got to get used to it. And uh, it took me a little bit and then I figured it out and I started um, working for a private contract and doing training for the U S military. Cool. Uh, if we can, US I, I, I want to get into that, but I, I think people might want to know, like, how did you get out of that depression? Because I'm sure some people are listening and, and they're in a new yeah. environment or they're coming back from combat and they're in the same position you were in. Like what, what are some tips to people to get out of that depression? Honestly, it was to focus on other things. That's what is it? You know, my whole focus for five years wasn't at war and there was no more, no more war. So the war came to me, became within my inside of myself. So I was like, well, now I got to figure out a way to focus on other things. So I decided to get out and focus on how I'm going to start a new life. Uh, how am I going to get a job? How am I going to uh, make a resume? I didn't know how to make a resume. I had to actually find a volunteer from Catholic charity to uh, make a resume, end up being wow. the best, my best friend. And, and it really just found people that are willing to help. And at the time, Iraqi refugees was not a thing. It was like yeah. a new yeah. thing. Uh, people yeah. will see you, you're from Iraq, you speak perfect English, you don't seem like you need help, but people don't realize you've only been in the country for about a few days. And 
that's when I started really wondering about things, right? I started uh, figuring out how to get a driver license, how wait for my social security to arrive and everything, get a resume. And out of nothing, I actually decided to go get a random job, right? I was starting to go like find jobs and people would look at your resume, they look at you. You speak a perfect English, but you were not in the country in the last month. You were new to the country. So it was just weird for people. They didn't know how to react. And um, it, perhaps at the time, I just didn't know. I was just learning things in the, in the daily basis. Uh, and I um, got a little bike. Uh, I would go in a bicycle every single day. And then I bought a car. And then I started moving around. And slowly, truly, I would just move it around. I would just go to random restaurants, random places. I'll talk to people. And I found people who connect with my environment who had a previous military background or something. And and somehow I started focusing on other things. I started meeting people and starting a whole entire new life. And uh, and I I pretty much end up you know doing the training, uh, which what really put me back into my environment. I started doing like training uh, military advisors who were going back to work with Iraqi military or PSYOP or civil affairs or public affairs guys. And I started going back to the bases, uh, seeing really what I can offer to, to help people who are going back overseas. And, and I started doing that for a while. Um, I found a lot of contracting jobs that if I wanted to go back to Iraq as sure. a civilian, but unfortunately, I was very familiar face in Iraq, so I couldn't really do that. So I had no option. I had to start my new life in the United States and I had to figure out a way to forget everything that happened. And I just went on with it, you know, and that's what I did. Cool. Did, did. Did you forget or did you just accept? Because um, I know you didn't forget. Obviously, we're talking about it. So you didn't yeah. forget. But was it more of trying not to remember it or just like, OK, this happened. That's a chapter. Let's close it. Let's move on to a new chapter. It's going to be there if I need to open up and reread re, re, that chapter again. But I'm closing that chapter and now I'm going to start a new chapter instead of just, I got to forget it. I, or, or did I'll, you just I'll tell like you the I'm, truth? I'll, I'll lie to you if I tell you, you could for nobody can forget. Yeah, that, you right? can't forget like, that. Yeah. I, I just, I just kind of figured out I had no options. I can't go back to Iraq. I can't even though there are jobs to go, but I couldn't do it. That's it. I, I'm a burnt card that cannot ever sure. come back. Um, sure. That, you know, that I could be executed, right? Sure in federal court, if I go back, I'm communicating with foreign intelligence and Iraqi law. This is yeah. a treason. So I, I just looked at it. And I was like, okay, well, you know, for me is I have to move to the next level, regardless how hard it was. It was extremely hard to make that move. It took me two years of being depressed. It took me eight months of, I didn't want to do anything, but in the end, at the end, I was like, I got no option. I got to move on. Life is moving on. And I got to, figure out how to do things. And I went from, you know, doing something for five years to actually learning very basic life skills, how to make a resume, how to cross the street, uh, how to really make eggs. I just really went on to learning how to survive and how to uh, just communicate with people. And, and, and uh, slowly I started integrating into the U S culture. And now, you know, a lot of people would go where, their own people are where a lot of Iraqis are. I didn't. I actually just started to challenge myself and can connect with American culture and understand how things works. And um, at the time, everything was difficult. Everything you just didn't know how. There, there was no sure. Google much at the time. There was no, uh, <laughs> you can search things on the internet. Uh, there's all these mapping. So 
the one of the first thing that I felt it was life or death for me that I couldn't do anything without it. It was actually having a GPS because yeah. how else would I know how to get back? If I drive out to go to a restaurant, I don't know how to get back to my house. So, yeah. so people don't, people don't went, remember the map quest either. When you just have to print shit off and you get directions. Well, it was horrible. like, I, <laughs> I, I was terrified, right? I only go, I went to the same restaurants for about three months sure. because it was only about a mile from my house. I went there in the same place, Turkish restaurant. They're like, Hey man, do you have anybody that cook, cooks for you at home or something? Like you're here every day. I'm like, I, I, I that's how, as far as I can go. And someone said, Hey, if you go, there's a place called Radio Shack and go to Radio Shack. They sell this high technology GPS and you just flip the address and it takes you back. And, and I'm like on it. And at the time, this was like a $600 to $300 investment. I went there and I literally went to the place and the guy was helping me out. I pulled like $10,000 from my pocket. Cash and he looked at me, he's like, whoa, and I, was like, I need the best one. And he was like, uh, this one right here is like 600 bucks. And I gave him the cash, took it and installed it in my car. And that's when life was like, go for it. You know? Wow. That guy definitely thought up. you were a drug dealer or something. <laughs> he did. He was like, oh, yeah. you're a baller. That's what he said. Literally, I never forget. And he thought I was a drug dealer. And I was like, this is it. And, um, he didn't know the blood and sweat that I put for that money, yeah. truly. Yeah, and, and, no, for sure. What? Yeah, what were you saying, Chris? No, I was just. I did the agency, or I mean, they, did they help with all that, getting you a place to stay, getting no, you a man. job? That's, that's, look that's at that! Fucking it was like horse first, shit. That's such bullshit. It was man. like the first first week. Here's how to survive and not get killed, and I will never forget. Like you know, the first two, month, you know, was a learning experience. Uh, one of the thankful things, one of the things I'm really thankful for is that when I landed in JFK, I was being chased in Iraq for five years. I was all scared of everything, right? Sure. I would look left and right. I would look at every single box that's on the side of the road. I would look at every single person that looks like me and we, we cause an eye contact. I, think I was just not normal in a way. And as soon as I got out of JFK and I got on the car, I'm looking right in front of me. And I'm looking, it's a female police officer. And he saw that I was just staring at her, right? And I'm looking at her in the face. And I'm like, it's a woman. And she got a gun and she's just talking to somebody she pulled over. And I just kind of shake my head. I'm like, wow, he should have never seen a woman police officer before. That's my first time, you know? And, and he looked at me and he said, look, he goes, if they ever pull you over, ever, a police pulls you over, stops you, talks to you, whatever. You do not do anything. You do not run. You're not yeah. being chased. And all you answer is yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And that's all you're going to do. That's all you need to do. And I'll never forget. I was like, well, like, you know, what if they work for the bad guys? Like, no, look, it's not, this environment is no longer there. That th these are good people. And I was like, okay, you know, they stopped me. I'll just answer yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I'll not say anything else. And Truly, that was the best thing I ever had because if I was pulled by a police officer and things were oh, yeah. not right with me and I didn't feel right, I would have probably ran away and it would have been the worst car chase in the country and I would have yeah. been killed. And well, I mean, from your experience too, you, you yeah. did you you did actually have an altercation and 
if the people yeah. don't listen to go back and listen to our first episode with you, yeah. they can hear what happened when that. And yeah. so I'm, I, yeah, I bet you, yeah, your first instinct would be to like, holy shit, I got to get out of here. Cause I don't want to yeah. go be tortured into jail again. And it's, it's for- really, it was just a, a really messed up behavior because you're do, you're coming from a different environment. I mean, literally the, the moment I get out before I see the police officer, I see, uh, a Muslim looking man with a long beard. And I didn't know that was normal in New York. Right. I didn't know that was like in America, that was normal. And I see the guy and I'm like, here they are. They were ahead of me. You know, like (laughs) they they made it ahead of me. And I'm literally, I don't have anything. I have just my luggage and I'm literally getting ready to take my luggage so I can smash it in his face in case something happened. And then I'm looking at him. He just passed by me. I'm looking at him like, is that a normal thing here? I didn't know. And yeah, when I it got makes out, sense. he was I mean, like, dude, we got all kind of people here in America. Do not engage anybody. No one's after you. And no one knows who you are. Just just go move on in your life. And truly, that's how what my figuration was. I was trying to figure out what, sure. how to survive, how to walk around, how to talk to people, how to communicate as a normal human being and not be scared or be nervous or anything like that. And I, and I was know. just going to say, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think everything is we're all in our own bubble. It's all learned behavior. It's the same thing as if you go to a shelter and you see a dog that's abused and they yeah. don't want you to go up and pet them, you know, because they're they're used to someone abusing them. They're not used to humans being friendly with them. So, yeah, I think we're we're much more alike to that than than we may realize. Um, I do want to make sure that we get into what you were saying earlier before I asked you that question about getting out of your depression, the the job that you ended up doing um, on a more permanent basis when you came back. Yeah, I mean, I end up, you know, I, I end up just really figuring things on my own. I was just challenging things as I was going. And um, as soon as I really, um, it, it was a good moment for me to really just realize what I have been through and where I was at that point and, and where I came from and, and how far and it just, it was a good moment for myself to sit with myself and figure things out to see, to process everything. Cause for five years, you didn't have time to process everything you went through. Uh, you, I never got emotional over my soldiers getting killed. I never got, got, got the time um, to think about where people are. Right. And I just th- thought about it. And I was like, here I am, I'm alive I'm in the United States. Uh, I am living free. I can do whatever I want. I can go eat eggs at two o'clock in the morning at, at IHOP <laughs> and not worry about someone shooting me and there's no curfew. Um, and just kind of started looking into the positive side. And I'm like, you know, I started processing things and I started going through my pictures and everything and just realizing how many people I've lost and here I am, I'm still here. And a lot of people are gone. A lot of people were just a date, uh, you know? It's what their death date and life ended right in there. And here I am, I made it. So it was a really rewarding experience to, to feel that you're free. Uh, it took you years of your life fighting to, to be free and, and be able to do things. And truly it was um, a blessing, you know, it was a good feeling. So you're- and the next good feeling I had, it was when I got my citizenship in yeah. 2017 and, and I went to, um, yeah, I went, I went to, uh, you know, getting my citizenship and seeing everybody that was there with me and, you know, to, to kind of see like where you come from, everything you went through. And finally, once I got my citizenship, that's when nobody in the world will be able to touch me anymore. That's it. You know, nobody could. Uh, there's no way I could be sent back to Iraq. There is no, nothing that nobody, I was just invisible, you know, to me, I'm like, 
holding that U.S. passport. And I'm like, you know, for every bad guy that ever came after me, good luck if you can make it here. You know, like, yeah. It's but done. back to what I was asking, what what job did you end up doing more permanently? In the military? Oh, so so I end up uh, working as a basically an advisor, like a PSYOP advisor. So my job was to train every single advisor that would go do exactly what these advisors did in the MOD. So my job was to put them in these environments and, and, and teach them the dynamics before they go deploy it. So when they get there, they're not lost. They're already trained how to protect themselves. They're trained to notice if there's anything not right and protect themselves. And uh, I, I did a lot of different things. I did PSYOP civil affairs. I did safety, how to deal with a certain culture. Uh, I did everything. Um, perhaps I even taught them how to eat with Iraqis when they get invited sure. over with a bunch of Iraqis, how uh, to eat properly, how to understand the culture, how to communicate, how to build the relationships between them and Iraqis that they're going to be working with. And that's literally what I did is mostly culture, psychological aspects. And I did that as a contractor. So I worked for private companies sure. and, you know, I worked for Mobius industry, which is pretty big, yep. Graph technology, all these big guys that are making really good money. And I was just a great uh, asset sitting, doing nothing with my life. And they're like, Oh, we'll just take the, we can take this guy. We can auction him to the military saying, look who we got here. And yeah. make tons of money. And I, I was making like 20 bucks an hour, right? And I thought this was a lot of money. I was like, wow, I'm rich, making 20 bucks an hour. Well, they were making like 100,000. Yeah, I know. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> They're only, I was going to ask you, those sons of bitches, man, I tell, people with your skill set, I mean, you're yeah. making easily. Now that you know, there are some that I knew were making 800, 900 bucks, you know, a day. Now, some yeah. of them would have to get it. And that, yeah, because yeah. And, it, and it's really, I don't know, right? I don't know about the time, like what, what really, what these are and contracts are. I thought these were the military. And I'm like, oh, these are, you're not the military, you're civilians. You're just making money. They contract and do everything. But to me, honestly, I was not doing this for the money. I felt I was obligated to hand this thing over before this guy gets off on the plane and go That's to this cool. environment. I'm like, I'm obligated to share this. And uh, whether I was getting paid or not, I was just going to go and teach this person how to get ready for this environment. And I, I did it for the fact is, is I just wanted to help. And it was giving me a purpose to stay in the fight. And uh, later on, I kind of felt like, look, at the, at years later, I was like, hey, this is not fair that I'm sharing all this information for nothing. And somebody's yeah. buying Ferraris and nice houses, houses and <laughs> have a nice life uh, using my expertise. So I hanged my hat and for brag about uh, a year and, and 12, a year, like two months, about literally 14 months ago. I kind of just felt I was done with that world. I have done uh, 12 years of service of training people after my five years of fight. I was like, this is a total of 16, 17 years of doing something and, and giving, giving back. Uh, I'm not getting any benefits out of this. I'm not walking away with anything. And I, psychologically, you know, I had the brain tumor. I was going through health issues. And I was like, this is it for me to walk away. I'm just going to go focus on myself and what I want to do. Because this guy never was able to dream about what they want to do, right? I, I was just doing sure. this every single day for years. So I was like, this time, I got to do things for me. I, 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 gotta, I, I, I did already. The war is over. Uh, Iraq's change, uh, Afghanistan was pretty much almost was going to end anyway. And I was like, well, this won't be here anyway. And uh, regardless, I can still work there, still do what I do with the SF units that are always doing these that kind of things. But I was like, you know, I'm done. 
uh, I, I'm just going to move on and, and, and uh, find a new environment. And I, that's when I created my company, The Black Side Show, and started really uh, educating uh, for vets, which I'm actually found a new purpose is working with vets, uh, showing them the positive impact of what they did in Iraq. Because the media, anybody don't share that with them. People only show them the negative side of uh, the invasion of Iraq. They show them, oh, you, we just went there and destroyed the country. They don't tell them there's a whole new generation of Iraqis that are able to stand up to Iran. They're able to fight. They're able to stand to Iran's face. And there are a new generation of people that are completely way better enhanced to human beings, better than my generation, better than my uh, parents' generation. And this is where Iraq stands today. This is what Iran is no longer comfortable, even though there's no U.S. presence in Iraq, because there's a new generation that grew up around the American soldier that's given Iran hell. And this is the positive side. And my job is to tell these veterans to, to chin up and be proud of this change, because it takes time. A lot of people think change comes right away. Uh, yeah. The change you were part of in Iraq back in 2003 to 2008, uh, it didn't show in 2010 because these people were still young, still playing on the street. It showed in 2019 when they were able to liberate Mosul, kick ISIS out on their own. And now you have all this new generation. In 2019, we had the biggest protest in our history against Iran. Um, that's the year Qasem Soleimani got airstriked in Iraq. Um, Qasem Soleimani was coming to Iraq to actually deal with these people. And he ended up in, uh, getting airstriked. So there's a lot of details that goes to the positive impact of these wars. Uh, not, a, not every story is negative. There's a lot of good stories, good positive impact these American soldiers were able to, to make in Iraq. And I'm obligated to, to share that with them. And I um, make sure I do that through my show every single day. I tell stories, I prove it with evidence. And right now the only mission that keeps me in this is this lawsuit against Iran on behalf of Gold Star families. And I am, um, I am obligated and determined to uh, prove Iran guilty uh, in the court of law yeah. and get all these families of Gold Star families and injured vets reimbursed off of Iranian money. If I do that, I could feel um, I have won my war because I didn't only go after their operatives in Iraq. Now I have went after their money. So I'll feel like I'll, I'll have the feeling like an IRS agent going after the Ayatollah, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Taking that's... his money out. So it, it would give me a complete feeling that I won the war. I didn't lose anything. I lost people. But uh, to me, if I can get their money to go towards the U.S. soldiers who, who lost their lives in Iraq and get their families or their kids to have a better life, I think I, I, how, how much can I be victorious? How much can I win more than that? And, uh, and I'm determined, and this is my mission today uh, that I – prove Iran guilty, win the case. And, uh, and, uh, and as I said to, to the lawyers, as to me, it's personal. I was brought to this, you know, I was like, I don't care how much I was going to get paid. I don't care how much you're going to make money. To me is I, I'm going to provide you all the evidence you got. The only thing I demand is you win the case and these soldiers go home happy. And uh, if I can do that, I think, I believe I can do anything in my life. So um I'm going to win this case and I'm determined to do it. And I collected every single evidence, like little crumbs out of a, a milk cereal, uh, a milk cereal, and then just <laughs> picked them up, put them all together, build a file, and uh, I'm going to win it. And uh, th that will be my last touch with Iran and its operative. 
And I don't know what else I can take from them. The only thing I can take from them is their clothes and that's it. <laughs> well, dude, that's, it's good outlook. And, and I think, you know, people should learn from your outlook and learning that you just, you kept moving forward. You kept, even when it got down and you got out of that element, I, I, I mean, I, I, I understand. I, I do. I think I understand somewhat of, of being overseas for 10 years. Granted, I got to come home and reacclimate. This is home. But I do understand of losing a sense of purpose once you leave and you found other purpose. And yeah. that's what we always tell veterans. You, you set goals, set another goal, find another purpose. Yeah. Don't just be sedentary. And you didn't. And to me, that's that's that is the hugest thing I think you bring to this episode is that you just showed again as we always preach on this and other veterans have preached and you, you've seen it, you've been there, done that, that if you're getting depressed, don't be sedentary, keep finding purpose. Even if you think it's mundane or you think it's, it's something that is minuscule, still those baby steps are going to help you get out of that depression and you're going to be successful. And regardless of how much money you make, or I don't think that, that, that deviates, that, that determines success. It's a purpose. You're, you're successful and you, you had every right in the world to not be successful because of what you went through. So I, I, and I said, I, I just think it's still amazing. Um, yeah, just, just your mindset to this day and you're still trying to help. And I and love it, that it, you're you still know, trying to be around. Yeah. Anything is possible. You know, people have to look that look, I was just a young Iraqi wandering around in Iraq and, you know, don't know what I was doing. And here I am in 2016, wandering around doing speaking events with Chris Perano, you know? Hey, look at that. And that's yeah. how actually you and I got to know each other was the it's book. And, and actually I was like, hey, this is guy, I can't remember who it was, but I remember I gave your name to somebody and said, hey, this guy's going to start speaking. We, you need to have him. Yeah. And this yeah. is when you, when you first started, I think that was like five, six years ago. It was like in 2016 or 17, something like yep. that. But yeah, uh, I started literally going, you know, slow doing things. And, you know, I, I, I when I attended your event in Raleigh, North Carolina, that was wild. That was a long I, time I was getting booked <laughs> out there and I was like, you know what? Uh, I shouldn't be afraid to get on stage and do what I do. And I ended up started doing this, taking it more seriously, doing training, learning how really speaking in public is. It was yeah. a whole science and psychological aspect behind <laughs> it. And it's ha I'm happy here I am. Seven years later, I'm still speaking. I just did an event in in Florida, in, in Navarre at the base. Yeah. Um, and now I'm like used to it. And I feel that I, I'm sharing my story. I'm still doing. Here I am seven years later. I'm still selling my books. I'm still um, doing speaking events. I'm still keeping what I did in Iraq alive. And I think this part of me will always be there, right? This is yeah. part of my life. I always say this, like, you know, I wasn't this GI Joe guy or whatever it is that I did. I, I was just an average guy that was put in the wrong environment. And, you know, I, I feel like it's kind of hard now. It's just being regular me. And I'm talking about this guy for five years that went doing crazy things. And I think that the more challenge you have in your life, it's the more of your skills that will come out. Yeah, yeah no, that's well said, man. Well said, uh, we're, we're wrapping things up here, but I wanted to ask if you could just give real quick um, your response to uh, the, the protests going on right now in Iran over women who no longer want to wear the hijab. They're burning them. Uh, Iran shutting down the internet, shutting down all exposure of this. Uh, but people are seeing videos because it's Twitter and things like that, that there are Iranians out there that are fed up with it. They're, they're fed up with uh, the tyranny. Over yeah. There. I mean, look, man, religious police in any country, it's a nasty force that needs to be eliminated. I give a props to Saudi Arabia for eliminating the religious police because Mohammed bin Salman, the new prince, did not want to put up with any of that stuff because 
religion and and freedom don't work together you know i agree truly they just don't work together um america has been through this experience keep religious people where they are and you'll be happy because they belong in church and a mosque and a synagogue and that's where they belong they don't belong in telling people what to do and this is something right now iran is the last islamic state in the world that is doing this kind of law enforcement on people um I'll tell you this, that the truth from someone who battled around all his life, collecting on them for five years, this change in Iraq is, and this change in Iran is impossible because the only way you can make this possible if somebody, some, someone with solid steel balls will drop weapons to these people so they can really defend themselves against this regime because Right now, they're dealing with their revolutionary guards who are extremely vicious. And I've seen these people. They're going to kill every single citizen in Iran before they even move a hair about anybody. They will just, they've been through this. You have to know protests blew up in Iran in 2011, 2012. Uh, What they did, they waited for everything to calm down. And then they picked up all the people that were in charge of these protests, executed them, and no one knew where they went. So Iran has been through this. Iran knows how to deal with this. The only way you can make a difference is you cannot fight somebody without a gun. You're dealing with a radical government who's extremely armed, who has an army and has a revolutionary guard, and uh, you're fighting them with nothing. We did this in Iraq in 2019 and end up shooting people in the, in the face. They end up eliminating every single leader. And where's the protest today? It's gone. So... The only difference, I know a lot of people are trying to show support. I know the world is trying to stand with the Iranians. Um, Iran doesn't care what you yeah. do. You can go on Instagram and make a, uh, the, the, the stand with Iran. And all the actors and actresses were saying, Zan Zendegi Azadi, stand with Iran. It doesn't work. Doesn't, yeah. The only thing works is four magazines, AK-47. And that's when you really start hearing good music because – that's when you could really fight for your freedom. That's when you can liberate yourself because the aggressor that's coming at you does not understand something called human rights. Don't know what that means. So the only thing that could really change the game in Iran right now is, I hate saying it this way, the only thing that could change it in Iran is a good, solid politician that can drop guns from the top of the skies and yeah. these protesters can open that little container and take care of business. That's the only way. We did it in Libya. We did it in Syria. We did it in a lot of countries. We can absolutely do it in Iran, but it, it's going to be who is really going to be willing to do that because our politics and our uh, things are a lot different today than they were years ago. And we, we I don't know who is going to do it, but. I can tell you, man, Iran will kill every single citizen before they even move that regime. That regime is not going anywhere. And the only way that regime is going to go away is in a, in a box, in a, in a, in a, and and, 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 and you're, you're right, man. And and I, if it happens and there's a war there again, I've been in Libya, you know, I've been in, we're, you know, back to Iraq, I've been in Yemen, after Yemen, if it happens, it turns it to a third world country because we did that to Libya. I was there. We destroyed it. Syria, we've pretty much destroyed. Yep. We've left. So it's it's like you you they got war. That's not going to change. You're spot on, dude. You can stand all you want. Hashtag it all you want on your L shaped yep. couch. All you want, Americans. That's going to change. But if we have a war there too, 
and we are involved with it and we help that like we were in Libya, like we were in Syria, like we were in Yemen, we'll destroy that nation. It'll turn into a third world country like we did with Libya, like we did with Syria, like Assad, even yeah. though Assad's hanging on, he's still trying to hang on and Yemen is gone. I mean, Sanaa is yeah. not the Sanaa that I know when I was there, when I used to get Kentucky Fried Chicken because they had a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Sanaa. But yeah, so, so it's really, a, it's there's there's really a no, no win scenario aside from just going back to the Stone Age and starting back from scratch, but that's up to the Iranians. That is completely yep. up to the Iranians, but he's he's right. I hate to tell yep. you, folks, Hamadi's right. They they will kill and execute, and they will get yeah. their power back because that's what and they do. And just look at the fact that Iran is keeping its interest in Syria and Yemen and everywhere yeah. by using force, by pumping sure. guns and fighters all over that, and training and everything they do. The only way back to really cause that disturbance, same disturbance they cause in other countries is to do it in their own country. And I know that the, the free Iranians want that help, but who's really going to be willing to stand up to the Iranian regime that could absolutely say, I don't care what you're going to do, Harris guns, go fight for your freedom. I don't care what Iran responds. That's what's going to take right now. So I do believe in my heart that to answer your questions, that the free Iranians that are fighting for freedom today, so as the free Iraqis who are fighting to get rid of the Iranian influence, so is this people in Syria, so is the people in, in Yemen. So is, all of these people are hoping that 224, somebody's going to come over and is going to make a very bold decision and, and give, them, um, give them that. They're hoping that the only place things like that can come from or that kind of Christmas gifts could come from is the United States. America yeah. and everybody's hoping everybody is hoping for I don't want to mention politics in your show or anything everybody's hoping for the, someone else's comeback right they're always like oh either this guy comes back to power either we get the new guy who sounds pretty crazy and he might be able to actually do that kind of thing so it truly all that's going to be determined how far Iran would go uh, with how U.S. election will go so I, I make a joke with against Iranian operatives who threaten me every single day um <laughs> In, in, in social media, I always say, hey, man, don't get too comfortable. 224 is getting close. And they know. They trust me. They know that, yeah, like 224 could be something new that we could have some crazy dude comes in all of a sudden. And, and uh, he's going to drop these containers. and He's not going to be afraid to do so. And, you know, the private industry would love to do that. So. We'll yeah, see. and and the the issue is too, and we'll wrap things up here. And I guess yeah, this will oh, be the shit. last political. Yeah, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how late. Yeah, yeah, yeah but this will be the last. Uh, you know, because we do try to stay apolitical here, but at the same time, politics does play into all of this. And I guess the one political statement I'll make is: I think a lot of guys who have been on the show who have been in combat would say America can't be the world police. And also at the I, same time, I, when you have a current president who has said on record that there is absolutely no limit to what he's going to spend in Ukraine. How much more money could we spend in every other single country when we we're currently it. going through a recession in this country? People are losing their jobs. People are paying astronomical prices for health care. And uh, I, I just think this uh, thirst for America to be the world police is kind of gone from a lot of people, understandably so, when they see what our own country is going through. And, yeah, and I'll be... say one last thing. So before you go, you know, yeah. a lot of people, my thinking is differently because of what I've been through. So I might, I might say things that are not going to sound pretty clear like people may think oh my god he doesn't agree or disagree you know us being the world police man it's still not a negative thing as we think it is because there are people like iran no one is able to really stand up to them in the whole entire planet so that sure. sometimes you have to be the bad guy to stand up to another bad guy 
So, but which is why it becomes, I think, a balancing act of like, what is our presence going to be in Ukraine? What is our presence going to be in in Iran? And you know, I think the the more libertarian view of let's get out of everywhere that's extreme as well. That's that's also impossible yeah. to do when you are America. But I think the other extreme of, as I said, current president saying on record, there's no limits to what we're going to spend in Ukraine. That's also unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, also think of all these countries that are that might be a rival to us, whether it's all these major countries, whether it's have the same exact military power. All of these countries are not trying to have the best interest for us. We might sound the evil that we are trying to be in their business, but believe it, if, believe it or not, any of these countries, if they get the opportunity to be in the middle of our business, they will because they have yeah. been and they have done it back, back way back in the day and they still doing it. And I know psychologically they do manipulate the U.S. public to pressure its government. But look, when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China, when it comes to all these countries, we might have a good relationship with them, but it doesn't mean these people, if they get the opportunity for us to be weak or not pay attention to what we're doing and worry about our internal affairs and everything, trust me, these guys will be in Syria. They'll be all over Iraq. They'll be all over all of these countries, and they will do exactly the same role that we're doing right now in the Middle East or anywhere in the world. So for that, our politics has been this way our whole entire life. And we are always going to be always in everyone's business because there is no guarantee if they get stronger, they will not be in our business. It's just it's just not sustainable. But that's that's the issue. It's just not monetary. We're sacrificing my kids future by help by putting all this money where it's just not sustainable. We spent too much we, and we don't have the infrastructure like we used to because we depend on. I know we're getting into politics now. Shit, I'm getting off topic. But we're getting. <laughs> He's but, gonna have but, to cut that but, off. But, but it's like, but it's like cheese. I mean, it's like because we 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 don't we don't produce our own shit anymore. That was the yeah, biggest. Yeah, it's fuck. true. That's I, the I do see. I I genuinely see as an outsider both of your sides, right? Because I remember actually years ago I had the same conversation with Jack Murphy, and I was a big Ron Paul supporter, oh. and Ron Paul was very much let's get out of everywhere. And I remember what he said to me still resonates with me that if we were to leave all these countries that we have a presence in. You don't think China is going to move there. You don't think China is going to have military bases. So I think it becomes the balancing act of, all right, we have to have a presence in these places, but how much and how how severe and how much do we sacrifice of our own federal infrastructure? And that's always, that's always going to be a question. And and I I agree with Hamity. Like we're always going to have a presence all over the globe. And in some cases we need to. So with that, definitely check out the black site show, as you were talking about before, Hammy does an awesome podcast. The Terrorist Whisper, the story of the pro-American, is the book that is still available, which as well as the documentary. And uh, at the terrorist, at the underscore terrorist underscore whisperer on Instagram, theterroristwhisperer.com. And I'm sure if people want to book you as a speaker, they could probably uh, contact yeah, you right how, through there. Are right? they, do you do your own or do you, are you with the speaking bureau? Uh, so actually you could buy the books from anywhere, but it's preferred to buy them from my website, theterroristwhisperer.com. And that's where you can buy it. They come autographed for the same price. So you can buy them there. And, and, and that's where I sell all my books on my own website. Uh, because I learned a lot about capitalism while being in the United States. <laughs> what about speaking? How do they get a hold of you for speaking? Speaking, you could just send me an email through my website. Actually, you could go there, send me an email. 
I speak all the time and this is what I do. And now my speaking is not only for educational purposes, also for entertainment in a way. So it's motivational. Am, You're a motivational yep. speaker, dude. You just say what you are now. You have be, yep. become motivational. Into the motivational speaker category. You're, you're, yep. And look at that. When he does smile, he actually has a decent fucking smile. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, you're, you're a good man, brother. And I appreciate you coming back on and my and pleasure. Dealing with, uh, you're, you're, and our paths will cross again, like personally soon. And, we're going to drink some Tano vodka together. I'm just drinking. Definitely. So just, all right. And some, maybe we'll get some absinthe again. No, I've never done that. What am I talking about? We don't, I don't do that kind of stuff. Wait, nah, yes, I do. But yeah, this, this I know you've been, been clean. It's all good. <laughs> this, this has been awesome. And I know people are really looking forward to part two of this. So this, this definitely did not disappoint. And you know what I will say, man, I think it's very important that people hear this perspective from you because yeah. to be fair, we've had so many people on the show and they all have the experience, but so many guys who have come back from combat and said, Iraq was a mistake. We shouldn't have been there. Nothing good came of it. So I do think it's important to have oh, you yeah. on to counter that because yeah. you have the experience and it's not that they're right or you're right. You yeah. both have the experience to, to demonstrate why you can make that argument. And what you yep. said today made me feel good, dude. I spent, you know, I, I went off and on in Iraq for 10 years. I mean, if you want to count yep. five, six years and for me, think back and I was like, God, what the fuck were we there for? But yep. you just saying that today has helped me. So if you didn't help anybody, you at least helped me today. And I appreciate my that, pleasure. Man. Cause that, that makes me feel, okay, you're right, man. I, I forgot about that. You lose perspective on why we were there. We think of the bigger picture because God dang it. We're so immersed in this freaking media culture of here in the United States. Because that's you watch produce. too much. News. I don't watch it anymore. I say, oh, damn it. I don't watch it anymore, but I still, <laughs> I just getting too old, man. And, but he's yeah. right. Stop watching all the news. I stopped watching it. I don't yeah. do it. But what, what you said, no, I, I, for, I had uh, forgotten, you know, I'd forgotten and, and about Before that. we close that, make sure you ask someone who experienced something versus someone who's reporting on it. It's yeah, very simple. It. Well said. And that means, okay, guys, it's not a white supremacist <laughs> symbol. I just want to let you know. That means, okay, for all you MSNBC yep. watchers. That's and a spot on. In the military, That's a spot yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Or Dude, it's, it's, it's so down crazy low. that. It's so crazy that you bring that up. I don't know if I can get into it. It would be a whole nother story, but I don't know if you heard about uh, Pat Militich. There was a picture that went around of him, I guess, on January 6th. And there was a guy next to him doing that. And they're trying to like, I heard this from, uh, from Pat's uh, co-host. There's uh, stories Jeffrey. everywhere. It's all good. Yeah, I heard this from uh, Jeffrey, uh, either way, his, his co-host, who's a black guy. You know yeah. what I mean? And they were yeah. saying like there was a picture of this and they were connecting Pat Milicic with white supremacy, which obviously is not I am a, funny that you I'm a Mexican I'm a Mexican white supremacist for all you <laughs> left wingers out there. <laughs> Give me a freaking break. This means okay. That's all it means. Spot on. Got it. We'll, we'll just do this. How about this? We'll just do this. <laughs> yeah. Hamity, you're a good man, brother. And and I know Thank I, you, brother. I I was supposed to get off twenty minutes ago. I'm gonna get killed by my wife, but that's why I love you, dude, because yeah, I respect you and I respect you. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you, my brother. Take care, awesome. guys. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battle Line Podcast and on Twitter at Battle Line Pod. To sign up for future Battle Line tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.